Today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned the Russian people's, quote, cowardly silence following a deadly missile strike on an apartment building in the city of Dnipro. At least 30 people were killed, dozens more wounded, including children. A fresh round of missiles pummeled Ukraine this weekend, hardest hit this residential apartment block in Dnipro. A reminder, Russian style, this is a war declared largely on civilians. Operating in pitch darkness, rescue workers raced overnight to pull people from the shattered building, pausing to listen for survivors. There's someone alive, they shout in unison. Among the dead, a young child. Among the living, 23-year-old Anastasia Schwetz, who survived by hiding in the bathroom of her seventh-floor apartment. Firefighters were still at it today, finding this woman alive more than 18 hours after the attack. The strike comes at the end of a week of intense combat in the east, where fighting continues in Bakhmut and Solidar. Ukrainian military officials say the capital city of Kyiv is under attack this morning. Air raid sirens wailed across the city today after Russia launched several missiles targeting critical infrastructure. No word yet on any casualties or the extent of the damage. It is the first time Russia has attacked the capital since New Year's Day. Russia's military has been focused on fierce fighting in the east. Filmed here in a Russian prison, recruiting convicts to fight on the front line in Solidar and Bakhmut. Ukrainian military analyst Oleksandr Kovalenko says arming hardened criminals has created the risk of even more battlefield atrocities. With those convicts, Prigozhin can commit any crime he thinks necessary to win the battle, he said. All he's done is build a blood business. Already, he told us they've seen an increase in war crimes in the areas where Wagner is fighting. Prigozhin has been outspoken in his criticism of senior Russian military leaders and their battlefield losses, including Putin's newly appointed general in charge of the war, Valery Gerasimov. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a great guest for you for this week's podcast. His name is Nicholas Laidlaw, and um, he is a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, and he's also been in Ukraine reporting on some of the things that's happening there from the front lines. Uh, Nick, it's great to have you on here. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you know, just I've been following some of the stuff that uh, you've been showing on Instagram and um, you have a book as well, which is like a a compilation of of stories and and experiences that uh, you've had in Ukraine. Uh, It's a compilation of the stories from uh, the soldiers, civilians, volunteers, uh, everyone in between. Uh, There's none of my experiences in there. Uh, It's all it's all it's all them. Got you. Okay. All right. So we're going to talk a bit about Ukraine. um, But before we do that, let's talk uh, some about your background uh, in the military and then uh, some of what you've done 
after you got out and then we'll, we'll get into Ukraine. Yeah, sounds good. So I was part of the, I guess you'd call it the tail end of the GWAT operation uh, generation. So I joined the Marine Corps um, 2012. Actually, the day I swore in at MEPS uh, was the day the Navy SEALs killed bin Laden. And so I guess that was oh, no way. Yeah. So I guess that was kind of foreshadowing that it would not be a very um, exciting Marine Corps career, uh, which it wasn't. Um, you know, so I, I joined the Marine Corps to kick in doors, um, do bad things to bad people, you know, but, you know, that just wasn't in the cards for me or anyone really in my generation of Marines. Uh, I guess that's just the way it goes. Um, all my seniors told me to be careful what you wish for. Uh, I never really understood what they were talking about. And then um, I guess that's part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Um, so I was a 0311 rifleman and an 8152 uh, Security Forces Marine. And so the first two years of my career, I was in um, Chesapeake and Norfolk, Virginia. And there I uh, went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which was actually pretty cool. Um, did a lot of like fence line security missions and stuff there. Uh, so a lot of uh, detaining Cuban nationals who came under or over the fence or um, through the bay there. Uh, and then after that, we went to Bahrain, uh, which is a island nation in the Middle East. And we were a QRF there. Um, came home from that deployment, uh, PCS to Second Battalion, six Marines in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And um, that was pretty cool. Di whole different type of Marine Corps, uh, the fleet. Um, deployed there at the MU, uh, the 26th MU to the Middle East again. Um, again, nothing really exciting happened. Uh, I decided, you know, like the war is, it's basically over. I'm an infantry Marine, not doing infantry stuff. I think it's time to, you know, pack up and, and go, go see what the civilian world's like. So 2017, I EAS'd, but I stayed in the reserves um, just to keep my foot in the door if something happened, you know. So I was going to drill every month, and then I was also going to uh, a tech school, uh, Lake Area Tech in Watertown, for the applied science of law enforcement. Because I figured, well, there's no really good um, way of using my skills in the Marine Corps in the civilian world outside of law enforcement. So Went did that. Uh, it's a two-year uh, associate's degree. Graduated from there, and then I worked as a deputy sheriff for about a year. And I just I absolutely hated it, man. Um, mm. <laughs> like law enforcement was not for me. It, I had that constant feeling of like you know when you're like packing to go to the field and you feel like you're forgetting something, but you don't know what it is, and you're like totally screwed if you don't have it. That's yeah. that's how I felt all the time. And like, like everything was your fault, no matter what you were doing. Um, and it was just a lot of like taking care of people's, uh, really the, taking care of people's problems that they should have just be handling themselves. Um, and so I left law enforcement after that, I went and decided to dabble in education. Uh, and so I've been doing that recently. And then, uh, in 2018, my friend Ricky Polina 
he approached me wanting to start a podcast uh, about military stuff because in the Marine Corps, I was always the guy talking about like military history and like the what it would have been like to be here and there, you know, just speculation. And um, so he and I started this podcast called Battles and Beers. Uh, it was not very successful. Um, so we kind of gave that up. Uh, some other people came on board uh, to try to help out. And it, it, it just wasn't very successful. But um, I kind of stayed with it in a different direction. Uh, I primarily used Instagram and Facebook. And I just read a ton of history books like uh, Vietnam by Andrew Weist or uh, Lullabies for Lieutenants by uh, Lieutenant Cox, a Marine Corps veteran. And I would just post little bits of books on Instagram and Facebook, like little personal experiences that these soldiers and whoever else had had. And then guys in the comments started writing their own like experiences, like something similar that happened to them. And I thought, oh man, like there's a whole like untapped reservoir of military history experiences that aren't documented yet. And I thought, okay, like I'll, I'll try my hand at that. Let's see, let's see how that works. And so I started going on, um, like YouTube videos and reading the comments. I was going to like VA, like hospitals and meetings and stuff like that, talking to guys in the parking lots about their experiences. And then, uh, battles and beers just kind of kept growing and growing, uh, to what it is now. And so basically for everyone listening, what I do is I consider myself to be, um, more like a carrier pigeon than anything. And so these people have these experiences in the military or as civilians who are witnesses to their witnesses or are participants to combat. I will document a story from them and I'll save it uh, for historical purposes and I'll upload it on Facebook and Instagram. And um, I don't know, I'm doing something right. People seem to be enjoying it. And um <clears throat> I document. I think the thing that's different with me is I document stories from both sides of uh, basically any war that I can get my hands on. I've spoken to veterans of the Second World War, uh, American veterans, British veterans, French veterans, and I've spoken to German veterans and Russian veterans and Japanese veterans. And then the same goes in Vietnam. You know, I've spoken to former Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army soldiers. And that's awesome. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting to get the other perspective, you know, because we only yeah. get our like think of all the movies that you've seen from the quote unquote the good guys perspective, you know. Like right. imagine how different Saving Private Ryan would be as a film if they made the exact same film about the exact same story but written from like one of the like German Panzer gunners perspectives, you know. Like what was it like for them sort right. of thing and um I know, man, I just got hooked. Um, I was speaking to these people. I, I just hold people who have endured these things in such high regard that to me, they're, they're all like Tom Brady. And so whenever I get to speak to someone who's participated in basically anything, it's like I get to meet 10 different versions of Tom Brady every day. Um, and so I document, uh, I would say the wars I've documented the most so far, definitely Ukraine. Uh, I've documented probably five, 600 stories from Ukrainian and Russian soldiers and civilians, volunteers alone. And then uh, before the 2022 invasion started, I'd probably documented another 
three to four hundred stories from veterans of other wars like Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the Gulf War, um, and lots of other foreign wars too, like the um, uh, like the Rhodesian Bush War is one that I documented mm. uh, pretty heavily on, and um, uh, the Iran Iraq War of the 80s and early 90s and stuff like that. And so I've kind of dabbled in everything and I've got a lot of contacts everywhere. And um, last about this time last year, probably December of uh, 2021, that's when Russia was starting to, you know, build up forces on uh, the border of Ukraine. And I had this feeling, I was like, something something big is going to happen here. And so I had been following, uh, Cossack Gundy on Instagram for a while to mm. follow me back. And so we'd spoken before and I documented several of his stories, um, beforehand, uh, before his page really blew up. Uh, cause I, I interviewed him about, um, some of his experiences fighting, uh, fighting ISIS and stuff like that. And so he was really my first step into the war in Ukraine because before that, I had no idea. I will say up and down any which way that I really had no idea what was going on in Ukraine um, prior to, I'd say, November of 2021. I was very in the dark about it. Um, and I guess that's part of the reason, like part part of the reason is like the Western media just didn't talk about it. And that's another one of my goals is I'm trying to educate people that, Hey, the world exists outside of Instagram and outside of the borders of the continental United States, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I started talking to Aiden and he was telling me about like these different mortar missions that they would be doing from the trenches and stuff like that. And, like his thoughts and feelings on a, uh, upcoming invasion of, um, uh, upcoming invasion. And so I thought, man, I should really find some more, Ukrainian soldiers like it should get their perspective on this and so I did that and I documented some of their stories and then I thought you know I've got this I've got a few fr friends um who know Russian soldiers I'll reach out to them and so like I'd say January time frame I had like this weird dialogue of Russian soldiers talking to Ukrainian soldiers through me on Instagram no way yeah, and it was it was really weird. Like, so I, I talked to one uh, Russian supply soldier. He was like one like their equivalent of a staff sergeant, and he's like, "I have no idea why we're here. I don't want to be here." And I was talking to a Ukrainian who was speaking to the Russian through me, and he's like, "Well, if if you, I don't want to fight you either, but like if you cross the border, like I'm gonna put you in the ground, sort of thing." Um, and it was just an interesting dialogue to see uh, between the two. And then I so I built this network of, I would say, probably 50-ish Ukrainian soldiers and around 10 Russian soldiers uh, prior to February 24th. And then um, on top of that, I had probably 100, 110 civilian contacts in Ukraine. And th these are civilians that spread all throughout the country. So they were in uh, Kiev, Odessa, Kharkov, um, Mariupol, all these places. <clears throat> and I've said this before on a different podcast, but I'm pretty sure I – I would bet money that I'm, I'm within the first 100 Westerners to know that the Russians had officially started their invasion on the evening of the 24th. Um, 
I remember I was sitting there playing Xbox, you know, just any other normal, normal night, uh, in the United States in the evening time. And then I got all these messages, like at the same time, almost like it started, like I'm in the trenches right now. They're shelling us. They're shooting grad over our heads. Like it's, it started. And I remember like thinking, okay, I've got to get to work. I've got to document as many stories as I can, as fast as I can, because this is going to be over in a week. I remember thinking like, God bless these Ukrainian soldiers. A ton of them are going to die. And a week from now, the Russian flag is going to be flying over government buildings in the capital city of Kiev. Yeah. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that either. I remember. No, I think everybody kind of thought that. Yeah. Yeah. I so. thought, you know, there's going to be a valiant defense, but, you know, it's just not going to. They're not going to do it. And I have never been proved more wrong in my entire life. And I'm so glad for it. Um, but there is, it was so confusing in the very early days of the war too. Um, not just for me, but for everyone. I remember talking to people who basically lived in frontline villages and they're like, I have no idea what's going on. They're like, the Russians drove here today, like drove through my village. And so did the Ukrainians. It's like, there's just so much going on. Um, and you can see the shock in my book. Um, so I've started this series. I had, I have two books out actually. It's called the what war did to us series. Uh, volume one was just a big compilation of stories from world war one, all the way up until, um, December of last year. And volume two is called What War Did to Us, Ukraine. It's the first 150 days of combat from February 24th to July 24th. And in that book are about 330-ish stories um, from both sides. Um, it's more heavy on the Ukrainian side because it's just easier to contact them. But you can see early on in the in the war how shocked everyone is um you can just read through the pages and the stories uh, the first few chapters like the first few weeks are very short they're very um it's you can just tell that the people are shocked um like the the civilians or everybody the civilians the soldiers mm. it's just all the stories are very short and um not not super detailed because you can tell like these people are still trying to figure out what's going on. Um, like here on February 25th, here's a story. Um, soldiers told us to stay inside. This is from a civilian. Soldiers told us to stay inside and we can see them down the road with machine guns. It's so loud here. I'm afraid if they are pushed back, the dog will, will reveal us to the Russians. I cannot believe how loud it has become. It's also so bright. The night seems like day outside because of the fires. This will this will be worse than last night. And so that was like the second day of the invasion. And that's like four or five sentences worth of a story. And then you go to like the middle end portions of the books. And you've got like stories that are like four, five, six, seven pages long. Um, and that's almost every story that I documented from the early days of the war are very short and like to the point because people just seemed like they were just trying to chew through what was going on. Um, but yeah, so that's basically what I do now is I find Ukrainian soldiers, civilians, 
Russian soldiers, civilians, and I talk to them, try to get their perspective on uh, what's going on in the war now. So that's basically what I'm doing now. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to and important to get the perspective of the other participants in a war, right? Um, and, you know, you said it earlier, like, people need to understand that there's a, a, a huge world out there, you know, outside of the borders of the United States. And um, not everyone views things the way we view it. And, and in the you know, some instances, you know, you may call a guy a terrorist, but in his mind, he might look at the United States and say, oh, you guys are the terrorists. You know, it's like, so it's all about perspective. And um, I, I think it's important that you're actually speaking to people from both sides of the conflict, not just uh, from the American side or, or from the side that, you know, we support, let's say. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I'll admit it's hard. It's very hard to keep um, my personal feelings out of it. Mm. Um, especially after having been to Ukraine now and, um, seeing a lot of the, the destruction and all of that stuff, like firsthand, like seeing it with my own eyes. Um, cause a lot of the, it reminds me so much of the second world war, like the destruction of, um, some of these cities. It's just, <coughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's very hard to remain um, detached and unbiased. Um, I definitely have my own uh, personal opinions. <coughs> Sorry. No problem. I definitely have my own personal opinions about who is right and who is wrong in this war. And, you know, but I try to keep my own thoughts and feelings off of my platform. Um, so I'll post stuff on my own um, personal Instagram. But anything related to battles and beers, I don't um, try to push my own beliefs on like, oh, look what these people did um, because they're criminals or whatever. But yeah, I've always believed that it's important to represent both sides because it's amazing how much more similar we are than we are different. Um, I remember uh, right after the um, – withdrawal from Kabul and Afghanistan. Um, I had been speaking to a lot of Afghan civilians who were still in the country or who had gotten out. And I spoke to a ton of Marines and sailors and Air Force uh, airmen and soldiers and stuff like that. And one, of the, one day in my DMs was someone who was a member of the Taliban. And so... You know, I can't get in trouble for this anymore because I'm not in the Marine Corps. I'm not contractually obliged to anything anymore. But he reached out, and it was very surprising to me. And he just wanted his story told too. Mm. And he wanted his perspective told. And I thought, like, wow, like, if I can document this, this will be, like, true, like, unbiased <coughs> documentation. And so I spoke to him. And his story was is not all that different than many of the Marines I've spoken with and served with. Um, you know, like he was telling me, like a lot of the the Taliban and stuff like that, they're not hardline believers in the ideology. It's just like at some point, 
like NATO forces or any someone affiliated with us had hurt them or their families and the Taliban was just the best way to get us out of the country. And he was saying that after the fall of um, the uh, Afghan government, the Taliban got a lot smaller because a lot of guys left. Like the the Americans were gone, the mission was completed, and they went back to go do whatever they wanted or what we're doing before because um, the war is over. And so I spoke to him like theoretically. I was like, so what would you do if I came there now? And I'll always remember these words. And he said, well, the war is over now. If you come here now, you are my guest. And I remember just thinking like that's that's pretty profound. I need to keep yeah. documenting the other side. Um, I can't really verbalize how important it is for me um, to be even to be trusted with these stories as well. It's, it's a huge deal for me. Um, I think the big draw for me and for battles and beers is that I document stories anonymously. And so if people want to submit a story anonymously, they can, I won't reveal any names, dates, locations, units. I'll publish it. People can believe it if they want to or not. I don't care. The thing I care about is that this person's story gets documented forever and then that then it does. If people but, want to believe it, that's awesome. If they don't, that's awesome too. I don't really care. Each time you document something and let's say you post it on Instagram, but it'll usually come with like an image or, or video from that particular scenario, right? Yep. So a lot of the stories that I document uh, have happened very recently. And so just for OPSEC reasons, I won't use um, pictures or videos that they send me. Um, if like cropping it or blurring too much of it will just, you know, just kind of ruin the post because a good mm. on Instagram, at least uh, a, a good picture or video completely makes or breaks a post. Um, you could have like the most heartfelt sob story, like the worst case scenario that somebody has ever experienced in combat written out but if the story if but if the picture or the video is not engaging it's just the algorithm just doesn't pick pick it up and it doesn't yeah. get the attention it deserves yeah so a lot of these times uh if people do submit pictures and videos um i'll upload it in addition to another video or a picture that is really good but also gives context to the story and so on all of my pictures in videos, I will say um, whether it is, whether or not it was from the event or if it's just used for context. All right, so let's um let's talk a little bit about you speaking with the Russian side, Russian soldiers. Um, you know, there's a lot of a ton of reporting on Ukraine. Um, I personally prefer to follow journalists and people who are actually there on social media. As opposed to say, you know, watching a, a major news network with an anchor, and, and you know, maybe they'll bring on some quote unquote experts. I agree. Um, but you know, there's one of the criticisms that some Americans have uh, of the entire situation, but in particular, when they're talking about Ukraine, is like there's a ton of propaganda. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole people have an issue with sending money and, and all these different things. But, uh, you know, there's 
there's probably a ton of propaganda on both sides. Um, you know, they're fighting an, an actual war plus an information war. Um, but I, I do see a lot of stuff in the media and big media. Basically, the, the way they paint the picture, it's almost like the Russian soldiers don't want to be there whatsoever. Um, they are, uh, you know, abandoning their post and, and all these kind of things. I'm sure some of it is happening, but I'm not sure if it's happening at the, you know, the rate that they kind of paint it at. Um, what's your experience with, with speaking to them yourself? In terms of, uh, like, believing the propaganda? Yeah, like, like, do you do you feel like they are completely um, disengaged mentally, and and you know, guys are, are running into the Ukrainian side, surrendering? You know, do you feel like that's happening as much as they kind of claim it is in the media? So, speaking to the Russians is always pretty interesting for me. Um, you kind of have three groups and you've got the guys who totally buy into the propaganda they 100 percent believe it they believe they're liberating ukraine um from an evil fascist regime um just right here i've got a story from a russian soldier who fought in the uh kharkiv area on the invasion of like the night of the invasion his um, he's a company commander and his call sign is bumblebee this is just a very short piece from him i am a russian army officer with the rank of captain i joined the army of my own free will and i studied at the intelligence facility then served in special forces for a short time i performed combat missions on the territory of north caucasus before entering ukraine Let's be clear, this is not an invasion. An example, it's like when America went into Iraq two times, 1991 and 2004. Is that an invasion to conquer? Exactly. We do not believe that we have invaded a foreign country. Yes, it was, of course, reckless on our part and unexpected for us as soldiers. We did not believe until we were given the combat order. The first days for us were very difficult and sad. So that guy... Bumblebee, he had not spent his entire life in Russia. He had visited Western countries before. Um, he'd send me pictures of him being at like concerts at Red Rocks in Colorado. Like this guy had traveled around, right? But he, speaking with him, like completely believes that Ukraine is just full of Nazis. You know, um, so he like truly believes in the mission of what they're doing. And then on the flip side of that, um, I also interviewed uh, Pavel uh, Filatyev. He's the now famous uh, Russian VDV deserter. And um, he, on the other, other on the other hand, he doesn't believe the propaganda at all. So he he took off, deserted the Russian army. Um, so those are two different groups. So the guys who do believe the propaganda and the guys who do not believe the propaganda and believe that they're actually doing wrong. And then you've got the third group who are probably the largest one. And they are just people who 
I think are the product of 100 years of generational trauma uh, from the Soviet Union and now. Um, they are the descendants of the poor Russian farmers and people from poor villages who don't have access to they don't have access to the news or the technology to know better if that makes sense they're kind of caught in this cycle of uh mass obedience and fear and i'm not giving anyone an excuse um for anything they do um like a lot of these Every, at the end, you know, like every, at the end of the day, everyone has a choice, but it also like people aren't given many choices to make, you know, like I see a lot of people saying, well, they should just refuse to go. Well, then I also spoke to a Russian soldier who at first refused to go and he was kept in a basement and tortured along with 20 other guys for a week, you know, and it's like, what, what choices do you really have after that point? You know, the government has your family's address, um, I think people in the West are a little too spoiled with the freedom that they they've got. And they can, they just assume, you know, like they, that these people in other countries have the same choices and same options as we do. Uh, and that's just, that's just not true. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And definitely with like a country like Russia, uh, with the history they have and, uh, how willing the government is to use force and violence to make things happen, you know, whatever that may be. There's, it's a, a lot of countries have, have done this, you know, use violence against the populace, but in particular in Russia, uh, they're, they're known to be pretty brutal. It's like, um, it's definitely not like it not is even here. Close. You know? um, I am very glad I was born when and where I was. Um, let's just, let's just put it that way. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely not giving excuses to anyone uh like the soldiers in bucha they had a choice you know no one made them grab women and children yeah. and rape them in the basements of people's houses you know like no one ordered them to do that that was a choice that they made um and you know that's that's sort of the frustrating part uh of staying unbiased is that you are communicating with people from a side that does that, you know, and it's so weird. I talk to my friends about this all the time where sometimes you talk to like the true believers in the propaganda and it literally feels like you're talking to someone from the SS from in 1944, you know, like I've spoken to people, I spoke to a, um, a German veteran of world war two and I got, he still like to this day, like Heil Hitler's, quietly to himself you know at, at the beginning of every meal and yeah and it's like i get That's that crazy. same vibe from a lot of these russian soldiers and it's like their attitude is you know like you know like if the ukrainians didn't want this they shouldn't be nazis sort of thing and it's just like an excuse to shell these civilian areas and i don't know but it's also like I'm, I'm not an expert on any of this. You know, a lot of what I'm saying is just speculation and observation that I've made. Um, but it's just, a, 
an extremely frustrating situation to be in sometimes is to be documenting both sides. Uh, my job would definitely be a lot easier if I was only reporting one side. Um, but that's just not the case. And then on the flip side now, um, it is extremely difficult for me to contact anyone on the on the Russian side. Um, um, now, like as soon as conscripts get sent into the army, they get their phones confiscated. And so yeah. the stories that I get are weeks or months old by the time I talk to them uh, because they were wounded and they were sent home or something like that. And they 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 had a bunch of problems with uh, soldiers and their cell phones and stuff. Oh yeah, like, uh, like sixty something of them just got killed. Uh, they just got blown up by HIMARS uh, because some mm-hmm. guy was like geo. He like he left like the geolocation on on his pictures, and they literally just sent rockets and missiles into the building where he was. Um, and then it's not even just That's the crazy. dangers of geolocation. It was they were sharing a lot of stuff that. I, I don't think the Russian army command would want people to see. They were sharing videos of them being issued like 50-year-old AKs that were just rusted and were like bent magazines and like just equipment that is just laughable. You know, it's like you're really going to war with that. Like I spoke to a Russian conscript. Um, he will remain nameless and he deserted and he spoke to me about this, but he was told – he was issued a like I think it's an SSH sixty eight helmet, and um, for those of you who don't know that what that is, it's literally just like a tin can metal helmet from like the sixties. And he was handed that, and he was like, "You are you kidding me?" And um, <clears throat> I've seen this with my own eyes. Um, some of the equipment that the Russians have, and it is also like I would refuse. Like that's how spoiled I am in the in the Marine Corps. Like I would refuse to deploy if I was issued that gear. Um, I saw one of their the, what they are calling an IFAC, and inside was a like their equivalent of a band aid, a big rubber band that's supposed to be used as a tourniquet, and then like Jeez. a piece of gauze that would like cover the area of like a scraped knee off of a bike, and that was like it. And then like some water purification tablets. But that was it. And then also um, I got to take a look at some Russian body armor, quote unquote. And then one of the pieces was literally just like – I've got it here actually. It's next to my um, desk. I'll send you a picture of it afterwards. But it's literally just like pieces of like paper or something like glued together to like form like a super hard cardboard. But like – you can bend it with your arms, like with your hands. It's, it's just kind of a joke. Yeah, and That's so crazy. like, the Russian army was having like after the quote unquote like partial mobilization was having a lot of trouble with these new conscripts being very like unsatisfied with the training they were receiving and the equipment they were receiving and who was getting um, mobilized as well. Um, so I have a contact inside of russia he's been feeding me all sorts of information stuff like that um he's not a russian national he's there uh on a visa for school and i'm not gonna identify him anymore by saying what country he's from but he is not russian and he told me that the russian police took him off of a train 
to check his papers because they were trying to get him sent uh, to the army. And he was like, no, I'm oh, not wow. a Russian citizen. And they're like, we don't care. Like, you're going anyway. And he's like, no, really, like, look, like, look at my ID. I'm not a Russian citizen. And so then they they caved and were like, okay, like, get out of here sort of thing. But, yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, there is, like, a resistance movement in Russia. I don't remember what it was called. But there, you've got people who are kind of, like, waking up inside of the country. They're, like, firebombing recruit sta- recruiting stations and – yeah, uh, that. stuff like that. And so, you know, it's definitely – I just try to remind myself that you can't broad stroke a single group of people for anything, you know, like – and people are not going to appreciate this, but you can't generalize anybody or anything, you know. I've That's one thing I've learned is that – even in a unit of like war criminals, you know, there's probably one genuinely good guy in there. Um, it's just people are too afraid to step out of line. They're too afraid to say no uh, because for a lot of them, the consequences are extremely severe. They are imprisonment or death. Um, I have spoken to some Ukrainians who have received Russian prisoners, you know. And the Russians seemed like grateful just to be like, like, finally, like, yes, like, I'm not going to be shelled in the trenches anymore or something like that. So there are definitely soldiers in the Russian army who want to uh, surrender. Um, Just like another guy, another Russian I spoke to. Uh, He's not conscripted yet, but he told me his wife and he had a conversation and he was like, if I get conscripted, the very first thing I'm doing when I get to the front line is surrendering. Yeah, I yeah, don't blame I don't, him. I don't blame him either. I wouldn't want to be mixed up in that at all. Yeah, and have you spoken to anyone or um, uh, maybe even considered speaking to anyone that's in, involved with the Wagner group? Uh, I would if I had access. But again, like it's getting very difficult to even find um, Russian soldiers to speak to. Um, first off, because they don't have their phones. And the second reason is when I do find them or they are referred to me, they are very hesitant to talk to me because I'm an American. So that's mm. that's another difficult uh, difficult part. But then I think I'm over really like kind of, uh, I wouldn't say over exaggerating, but I am talking a lot about the Russians when in reality, I don't really document that many stories from them anymore. The vast majority of stories that I get are from, uh, Ukrainian soldiers, Western volunteers, uh, aid workers and civilians. That's the vast, vast majority. I'd say they're probably 90 95 percent of the people i talk to now and so let's talk about uh your experience actually going to ukraine um when did you decide that you wanted to actually go so i remember it was early september i think um i remember i just kind of woke up and i was like i need to go you know like if this Hmm. it's been going on long enough. I had a long talk with my girlfriend. 
about you know the risks involved and what could happen stuff like that um and i was like well i I feel like if i don't go and see it with my own eyes and i'm gonna regret it for the rest of my life um that and it would add i think some credibility and legitimacy to what i'm doing if i can you know tell people like yeah i've i've been there you know i was i was in ukraine blah 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 um kind of would solidify my position as a, I guess if you want to call it like a combat journalist. Um, to, I don't really consider myself to be a journalist. Um, I think I'm more of a, like I said, a carrier pigeon. I'm just a guy who enjoys talking to people and sharing their stories with other people. But yeah, so early September, I was like, okay, I got to go. Um, and right off the bat my biggest issue was going to be financing like how okay like how am i going to pay for this i don't even know the logistics of a trip like this sort of thing and uh atlas global aid the nonprofit, they reached out to me they're like hey we'll pay for your trip to come over here to document uh they believed in what i was doing thought it was good to go and so they did uh they paid for me to come out there uh, they got me a really good translator who is actually th- – this guy was crazy. My translator, Alex, 19 years old, but he spoke and acted like he was 35. It's a, it's so amazing and weird to see how this war has aged like very young adults. Uh, actually, when he told me he was 19, I was like, there's no way. Like you're at least 25. Um, yeah, 19 paramedic saved tons of lives, also lost a lot of other people. I interviewed him. He's one of the people I've videoed or interviewed on camera. But yeah, so I went over to Ukraine, uh, with the help of Atlas, uh, global aid and, uh, project leaflet, the, the admin there, Chris, he went over with me as well. So he and I were talking for like weeks about like, you know, we should really get over to Ukraine, document what we can sort of thing and so went over and the trip there was not as bad as i anticipated it would anticipated it would be but it was very um eerie so like you get to uh the airports in europe and people look at you and they're like okay military age male it's got a couple bags probably going to ukraine and there was one mm-hmm. moment um I believe I don't remember where it was. I think we were in France, and we were on uh, we were on a bus. There was this elderly gentleman there, and he had what I assume to be a Ukrainian accent. Um, I can't really place Eastern European accents very well. It sounded U- Ukrainian or Russian or something. But he saw our bags and sitting there, and saw my camera, and he like grabbed me by the hand, and he was like, "You'll be safe." I was like, excuse me? He's like, you'll be safe. I was like, all right, thank, thank you. And I didn't really know how, like, what to say or handle it because we didn't tell anyone we were going to Ukraine. We were very like, low-key about it. You know, we, were going to, we were going to Poland uh, you know, on vacation is what we told everybody. And um, so, yeah, we flew into Poland, uh, Warsaw. Then you got to take a train over the border? Or? Uh, we took a bus. So the whole bus situation was a nightmare. Uh, we got left behind by our first bus, and then the second bus 
told us to wait somewhere and they'd come pick us up and they literally just drove by and waved at us and left us there and took our money. So <laughs> that was obviously, I was like, Oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> um, and then we finally got on another bus. It was like an 18 hour ride, uh, from Poland to Kiev. And we arrived to Kiev early in the morning. Uh, Maddie, our trip manager from Atlas was at the bus station there ready to meet, meet us. And we just went right to work right away so we started going around the city documenting uh the recent um missile and rocket strikes uh saw a column of russian uh, destroyed russian vehicles interviewed some people and so and this was september this was in sorry i'm sorry uh this was in november so okay. that we got there on november 12th i believe and then we left on the 24th so it wasn't a very long trip um because I have – so Battles of Beers is not like my job job. I don't get paid for it. Uh, I have a different civilian job and I literally burnt all the PTO I had to go. Um, so yeah, we get to Ukraine and that night I have dinner with some of the other uh, pages on Instagram there uh, like Project Siren or uh, Dark Horse, Task Force 31. Uh, all these other like pages um, on Instagram that are like doing really good work in Ukraine. Uh, we had kind of formed a little network. And we met for supper that night. Nice. And um, there were some guys uh, who were Western fighters, and I interviewed them that night at the hotel. Um, the next day, we drove around again. Uh, went to Bucha, to Mashoon, to Irpin, documented more battlefields there, and talked to more people. And that's just outside of Kiev, right? Over yeah. There. So speaking with these guys earlier on in the war and the fighting there, you don't realize how close these places are to like the center of Kiev. Like Bucha is literally just a tiny little drive away yeah. from my hotel um, in the center of Kiev. And like Bucha is where all these – was where that massacre happened. Yes. And – the same with Moshun. Like Moshun was a pretty pivotal battle there early on uh, in the war. And that's like right next to Kiev. And it was crazy. Like I didn't understand like how close the Russians actually were to the city itself. And then I believe some units actually got inside the city. There was like a Spetsnaz kill squad that went to kill Zelensky. And a few guys showed me the like the wrecked Russian vehicles and like the, the location where they ambushed these Russians and like killed them all. And then, uh, yeah, the thing about Kiev is I was amazed at how desensitized the people were to the war. Um, in in a way, how will I describe it? So like we'll be having like breakfast, right? So we went and had breakfast at this place, and then I hear air raid sirens. I've never heard an air raid siren before. And it was really loud and kind of alarming. And, and, you know, like the training in the Marine Corps is like, okay, you hear any kind of alarm, like you seek shelter, you hit the deck, you do whatever. And literally my waiter never stopped taking my order as these alarms were going off. And like people were still walking around in the street outside. And it was just weird to see how like used to the potential of dying was for these people like everyone just kind of like accepted it you know like they've been through so many air raid alarms now where it's like okay well if i get hit by a missile i get hit by a missile like yeah 
I've got to get to work. Um, but yeah, so that was like the big part of the trip was in Kiev because just because there were so many people there for me to interview that I had spoken to for months and uh, got to speak to a lot of them in person. And then we went south. Uh, her son was liberated like that same week and our group wanted to go down there, uh, hand out some sleeping bags, some medical aid, stuff like that. But um, a bunch of press down there were getting in trouble going into areas they weren't supposed to. And so people were getting their press passes taken away. And so getting my press pass was a huge pain in the ass. Mm. Um, we got our press passes in our emails like as we were boarding the plane to get to go to Ukraine. So like I didn't know if I was even going to be able to document stuff when I was there up until the last minute. That's how like worried I was about these press passes. So I didn't want to lose mine and be blacklisted in Ukraine. So, you know, we kind of just made the collective decision as a group, like, okay, we're probably not going to go south. But we did go to Odessa and Mikolaev. And Mikolaev was a more um, – it was a city more affected by the war. And so there were a lot more like blackouts Um a lot more uh, visible destruction. A lot more places were closed. Uh, one thing that really stuck out to me. So we were staying uh, in like this 10-story apartment building. And we were on like the ninth floor or something like that. And there was an air raid siren going on. And so I've got a video of this on my phone. So the air raid siren started. I stick my phone out the window to record it. And then you can just hear all across the city – it's just like hundreds of dogs started barking. And oh, that's wow. the only two things you can hear is the air raid siren and the dogs. And then after the sirens stopped, the dogs still barked for like five minutes after that. And it, it was one of like the eeriest moments of my life was just listening to these dogs barking. Uh, yeah, and then in Mikolaev, I interviewed two Western guys. Uh, both of them have pretty viral media, uh, social media pages. Um, won't bring their names up now or yet because I haven't published those interviews. Uh, kind of want them to be a surprise, and I still need to get their okay um, for publication and stuff like that. Yeah, and then after that, we went east, um, all the way to Kramatorsk, which is just just barely west of uh, Bakhmut. And so, anyone paying attention right now uh, to the war in Ukraine, Bakhmut is basically. It's like the the Battle of Verdun from World War One. Um, anywhere from one hundred to three hundred fifty soldiers, on average, are dying on either on one side every day in Bakhmut. Uh, it's an incredibly bloody, dangerous battle, and uh, it's the one I'm documenting the most heavily right now so most of the soldiers that i'm talking to are in the bakhmut uh solidar area yeah so we went to uh kramatorsk there and that was another town that you can tell like there was not many people still there um stopped at a restaurant like a burger place to interview uh someone i would consider my good friend now uh viking on instagram i don't know uh, if you've seen his stuff, but I've interviewed him a ton of times. He's a Georgian volunteer uh, fighting in the International Legion. He's uh, in my maybe. 
yeah, he's in my book a lot. Um, I've documented like a ton of stories from him. And so I got to meet him in person, hand him a copy of the book. Uh, and while I was interviewing him, we got interrupted with another air raid siren. And so at the time, I didn't have any contacts inside of the city of Bakhmut or the area. And so the security team that I had with me, they heavily advised going into Bakhmut if we didn't know exactly where we were going and who we were going to talk to because their fear was we were just going to be driving around in the streets just waiting to get hit by indirect fire or a Russian drone or something like that. And so they were like, yeah, probably not. And so Kramatorsk was as close as I got to the front lines on that trip. Uh, after that, we had to beat feet back west uh, to Kiev. There we had another day, uh, interviewed some more guys, and then we started our long uh, journey home. And uh, one of the eerie parts of uh, the journey to and from Ukraine. So going into Ukraine, uh, our bus was mostly like military-age males. And it wasn't a full bus. Leaving Ukraine, it was a completely full bus full of mostly women, women and children. Yeah. And that was the eeriest part. And then uh, I didn't take any pictures of this because I wanted to be respectful of people's privacy. But uh, as we were boarding the bus to leave, there were tons of like husbands or boyfriends or whatever in military uniforms there. Uh hugging and kissing what I would assume to be their wives and girlfriends who are getting on these buses. Yeah, I think they have a uh, a rule where no fighting age male can leave the country uh, unless there's like a specific reason or a special permission or something. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriot Survival Food Kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4patriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that's... That's a rule that they have in place there yeah. in Ukraine. Uh, there was some other stuff we did as well. Uh, I went up north to the Chernobyl area to talk to some of the partisans who had fought up there. Uh, some uh, Western volunteers took us to a battlefield of a site of an ambush that they had laid. And uh, they actually took us to the exact positions they were firing from because their brass was still on the ground. 
there, uh, drove on some roads with, that had not been, uh, demined yet. So that was interesting. Uh, yeah, all in all, I was never in really, I would say any like serious level of danger while I was in Ukraine. It was very, uh, low key, I guess you'll say I do. I guess I didn't get that, that itch scratched yet. Um, so I am planning another trip over there. Uh, I'd like to go back in like March or April, but this time I'd like to fund the trip, uh, completely by myself. And so I'll probably have to start fundraising here in the next, uh, couple weeks, uh, and fundraise up until the date of departure to go because next time, like two weeks in Ukraine was not enough time. Uh, I interviewed a ton of people, but still not nearly the amount of people that I wanted to get done, uh, on camera. And so, I need to go back. I, I want to say I want to go back, but I feel like I need to go back. I need, I have work there that's still not done. Um, a lot of stories are going to the graves without being told. Uh, and I need to, I don't know. I can't describe it. I feel like I, like I'm always on my phone. I'm always checking my Instagram DMs, my emails. Like, okay, did a soldier message me? Do I have another lead? Something like that. Uh, I think a, f a switch flipped in me uh, during the siege of Mariupol. I documented a story during that battle. I was pretty, I was pretty involved in it uh, from a distance um, for talking to the soldiers inside of there. I don't know if you know much about the siege of Mariupol, but it was basically yeah. at the steel plant. You're talking about. Yeah, the yeah. Azov stall. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Mariupol is a city uh, on the southern coast of Ukraine, south southeastern coast, uh, next to the Sea of Azov. And right off the bat, like right in the beginning of the invasion, the city got surrounded and cut off. And the soldiers who were there, um, by the end they were drinking out of puddles and eating dog food uh to survive and the like the wounded there were dying of completely preventable wounds you know because they just didn't have medicine they didn't have antibiotics they didn't have bandages anything that they needed to survive and they were all basically asking for help and i documented so many stories from the battle of Mariupol there. And one of them really sticks out to me. And I think about him every day. His name is, uh, Anton Krill. And he, I interviewed him quite extensively about his experience, uh, during the battle. And so Anton, he was, uh, 22 years old and I met him on Instagram where I met most of these guys and I was just talking to him how I started out. You know, it's all about building rapport and stuff. Like you can't really just message someone and be like, hey, can you tell me about the worst day of your life? Right, right. You have to like yeah, form so a connection. Yeah, so it all yeah. starts with rapport building. And so I was asking him about the battle, explaining about myself. You know, I was like, you know, I, I really respect like what you're doing. Like you guys have some serious balls, you know. And he took to me right away. Uh, and he – gave me like four or five stories that I ended up putting in the book. Uh, his story starts on page 268 for anyone who's interested uh, on where he is in the book. Uh, week 12 of the war. And he's a Ukrainian soldier in the Azov regiment. 
and the stories I documented, I talked to him from May 12th to May 14th of uh, 2022. And so he told me all these stories about the siege and what it was like to fight up close. Like he could see and hear the Russians and like he would go through their equipment after they were dead. And like he would talk about like how he even felt bad for some of them because they were sent in with like body armor with no plates in and like one one magazine uh and then i remember on the last day i was talking to him i asked him like what do you i was like i was like anton what do you want to do when the like the war is over sort of question and since then i've hesitated to ask anyone this because i feel like it i, I don't know it just puts something in the universe that shouldn't be there but uh I asked him, I, I was like, Anton, what do you want to do when the war is over? And at this point of the battle, he was inside Azovstal. They were completely surrounded. They were starving. The wounded were dying of completely preventable diseases and wounds. And I asked him, and he replied, and I quote, Here in short, we are always relying on each other. We are in history now, and we have done everything possible and impossible. After we are pulled out of here, I will immediately marry my girlfriend, and everything will be Ukraine. That was on May 13th, and the very next day he was killed by a yeah. Russian drone. And I've spoken to his girlfriend, and she declined to put anything uh, in the book about him, but he was, but she was very supportive of having his story told. Um, and then he has, he also has a brother as well, a little brother. Uh, his brother's name is, uh, Bogdan and Bogdan also fought in Mariupol. He was wounded and evacuated, uh, via a helicopter, uh, earlier in the battle. But yeah, Anton stayed and, uh, he, he was killed, uh, on May 14th and it's weird because I didn't know him I had never met him in person I only spoke to him for like two full days but I think about him and his words and his story like every single day and I keep hearing it like in my head like over and over like we have done everything possible and impossible and I don't know it just it's it's one of those things where it's like I feel like I documented his last words to the outside and to me it just felt really important that I just keep doing that, you know, because I don't know how many more last words I'm going to document, but I want to document as many as I can. Yeah, I mean that's that's profound stuff, man. Um you know, I don't know a whole lot about that battle, but I do know it was a, a like an ugly thing and a lot of guys were getting killed and um I think when it ended, uh, they essentially surrendered to the Russians. And if I'm not mistaken, in the last couple of months, I think there was some prisoner swaps, and some of the some of or all of the guys who were at that battle uh, were released. Yep, some of them were. Uh, not all of them. Uh, I, a lot of the chain of command was released. Um, I was talking to some of the chain of command while they were in there. 
like uh, Major Bowden Krotovich. He's one of them that I was speaking with. Uh, he's a really good guy. A lot, I've spoken to a lot of other uh, members of his regiment, and they hold him really high regard. Uh, same with uh, Soldier, but the call sign Gandalf. I don't know if you've seen pictures of him, but he's the one with the hook hand. He's got one hand, and he's got a hook. Oh, no, I haven't seen that, no. Yeah, he's a he's a badass dude as well. Um, and then as well, many other soldiers were released, and I'm talking to them still uh, about the transition and stuff. I've documented what it was like being in Russian captivity, but I've told them I won't publish anything until all of them are released because you never know. You know, like some, like I could publish something that will upset the Russians and they'll – I don't know, like beat someone because of it or yeah. torture them. You know, I don't want anyone to get hurt because of something I publish. Uh, and because of that, I redact a lot of information from stories. Some soldiers will tell me entirely too much information about where they are, what they're doing, what they're going to be doing. And I'll redact stuff for their own safety. It's like, man, you should not be telling me this. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, you need to be quiet about some of this. Uh, so – that's one thing, and I think a lot of that, like a lot of soldiers who do know that I talk to both sides, are willing to talk to me because they know like I'm not gonna screw someone over by giving someone information that they shouldn't be, you know, having. Right. Well, in in doing that kind of work, um, and speaking to people who are fighting a war, or speaking to people who are uh, doing things behind the scenes, let's say. Uh, your, your reputation and your integrity will take you as far as it can go. And um, when you have a good reputation, then people are willing to talk to you. So, you know, that's that's definitely important. Yeah, I think that's probably my greatest strength right now uh, is the reputation that I have for being trustworthy with these stories. Yeah. Uh, and I hope – I, I say it all the time. Uh, I'll comment on the stories on my own personal Instagram just so people can see who they're talking to. You know, And so it's like this is who I am. You can see my life here in these pictures. Uh, and I always comment like I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful that I'm being trusted with the responsibility of documenting and sharing these stories. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a point I always try to get across is that I am so grateful to be trusted to be doing this. Um, so you you mentioned that he was in a uh, Azov regiment. Yep. Okay, so you know one of the reasons that Putin gave for why they invaded is you know they had to like quote unquote denazify Ukraine. Um, you know there are a ton of. I'm not sure how much you're seeing this uh, as you're focused on Ukraine itself, but. There's a ton of discussion in America about Ukraine and, and the folks who are, uh, for whatever reason, sort of anti-Ukraine always bring up like, oh, well, there's they have Nazis and, you know, it's full of Nazis and this and that. Um, and then in particular, the Azov Battalion, uh, I believe, was started by actual guys who are self-proclaimed Nazis. Um, but as I understand it... Um, They've since expanded, and I think there's only a small percentage of the leadership that are actual, like, view themselves as Nazis, as opposed to the majority of them are, are have no kind of 
Nazi ideology or, or connection to that. Uh, what's your experience with talking to those guys uh, as far as that goes? Yep. So definitely no doubt. <clears throat> In the early days of the Azar Regiment, they did have uh, some neo-Nazi ties to it. But I've always found it's it's interesting. Like Even on the Russian side, like there's pictures and videos of them with like SS logos and like legit neo-Nazis fighting yeah. in Wagner group, you know? So I always thought that was a bit hypocritical, but without a doubt, you know, in the early years, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, this, I'm just repeating what I've been told. Uh, in the early years, uh, there definitely were probably quite a few neo-Nazis within the Azov regiment, but they were also like a weird, like partisan, group like like a volunteer like they were not part of like the official like ukrainian armed forces yeah and they were you know inducted into the ukrainian military and like you can be like sent there you know so it's like you enlist in the ukrainian army like okay you're being sent to like the azov regiment now right uh, and all the guys i've spoken to are like at so at one point yeah there were probably a lot of neo nazis here but like i don't know any yeah. you know i spoke to major boden krotovich the chief of staff of the regiment and he like i asked him about this and he talked to the wall street journal about it and he's like if you are a neo nazi like you are identified and you are removed from the regiment now like they are very aware of like at the very least, it's a PR thing, you know, and it's like we're not going to have support if we have neo-Nazis in the regiment like and like we need support more than we need an extra body, you know. So it's like what's the like it's just hurting us more having these people here. And so they remove them all. And, you know, it's like and if there are neo-Nazis there now, it's no more than there are in your average marine corps regiment or your average yeah. army regiment you know like there's neo-nazis everywhere but just yeah. because there's like one or two doesn't mean that like the whole oh the whole regiment's just riddled with them you know and it's like i say the same thing about wagner group how there are legit neo-nazis there that doesn't mean they're all neo-nazis you know it's the same thing earlier that you just can't broad like brush stroke everything um but yeah that's just what they've told me i have spoken with tons of guys in the Azov regiment and they are not, they have not, at least no one's confessed to me that they are uh, like a neo-Nazi. Like the reason they join Azov is basically the same reason why I joined the Marine Corps is they are, the reg, they're a regiment that sees combat a lot. They train to a very high standard and they are very proud of their traditions and um, they just want to fight and defend Ukraine. Like, that, that's just, that's about as well as I can explain that question. Um, I have not met or spoken with anyone who has at least admitted to me that they're a neo-Nazi. Uh, and I really doubt, I really, really doubt that there are as many neo-Nazis in Ukraine as, uh the russians are claiming it's definitely like uh like a propaganda win for the russians that as many americans believe that the, the ukraine is run by nazis as they do yeah yeah i think there's a and, and maybe some of this is just sort of partisan politics yep um 
but you know, there, there's a ton of uh, conservative, you know, media folks who sort of echo these Russian talking points on Ukraine, um, and uh, and of course, you know, that trickles down through the the folks who watch them and and get their news and information from them. So um, you see a ton of that. Uh, obviously, not, you know, of course, not all, but. Um, so would you say talking to that young guy in uh who died in the in the uh the steel plant Anton Yeah Anton would you say that that was one of the more sort of profound uh experiences of of you know a, a guy you spoke to or someone you met and and documented them in Ukraine Yeah there are definitely a handful of guys who really their stories really resonate with me or just them as people resonate with me. And Anton is definitely uh, one of them uh, as well as Viking. I think Viking and I have just spoken for so long now, so many months that uh, I've become pretty invested uh, in his life and his safety and uh, his plans after the war. Even uh, he and I have some plans together once the That's war. Awesome. Is um, and, you know, seeing him, like meeting him in person uh, behind the front lines in Kramatorsk at that burger place uh, will, I think, not only be one of the highlights of my like year, but of my entire life. Um, That's awesome. It was it was very it was a very special moment for me uh, meeting him and handing him the book that he had literally bled for to give me stories. Um, Are you able to share some of his story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me pull one up. So this is a story from Viking. He's a Georgian volunteer in the International Legion, and this was during the Battle of Severodonetsk. This was on June 12th. I hate the Air Force even more now. Fuckers bomb us relentlessly. There's a single Russian tank in the city that's been giving us trouble for a few days now. Unlike what we've seen so far, this tank crew is solid. I mean, they know what they're doing. Always changing position, shooting from cover where it's impossible to hit them back. They killed some of ours, and I helped drag their bodies out. They're literally ripping holes in our defense, and we can't seem to catch them. Can't help but respect this tank crew. First time I met a worthy adversary in this war. All the more reason why I'm so eager to blow them up. It's weird. We've reached a point where we have mutual respect. But this tank crew is driving me nuts. Can't use an end-law. Too much metal in the way. Too many buildings for a javelin. Gotta go old school. But I'll have to ambush it. They make it impossible, but they're a fucking great tank crew. Pity it's on the enemy side. That's from uh, Viking. And then uh, my artist, Jao, he actually drew a little picture of it on uh, page 305. And uh, Viking never did get that tank crew, by the way. I asked him mm. about it while we were having a burger together, and he never did get the crew. 
and you said he lost his hand. Did he lose his hand in this this war or? No, that's another guy named uh, his uh, call sign is Gandalf. So oh, got you. Gandalf okay, okay. was in Mariupol. Viking fought in uh, Mashoon, Severodonetsk, and now Bakhmut, and then some other places. But I don't think uh, we can talk about that yet. <laughs> and so you mentioned that Viking is a Georgian. Yep, he's a Georgian. Uh, basically, as soon as the Russians crossed the border on the twenty fourth, he. Ended up in Ukraine. It was like March 1st or March 2nd. He joined the International Legion. And he was part of the first group to actually uh, repel the Russians. And he was in the Battle of uh, Mashoon. And uh, I know, you know, Russia invaded Georgia in, I think, 2008. Yep, 2008. Um, So I'm sure a lot of people in Georgia don't view the Russians favorably, you know. Uh, You would have to ask uh, Viking that. There are some and there are some not. He views mm. it's it's an interesting dynamic there. A lot of Georgians are quite upset that so many Russians are like moving into their country now. Sure. Uh, and then a lot of Ru- Georgians have not forgotten that they were invaded as well. So right. Viking is one of those people who has not forgotten and he will not forget. Uh, so when you when you went there, um, you were in addition to speaking to some of these guys who have been fighting or were fighting. You've also spoken to civilians. Um, what was that like? And and could you share maybe something that had an impact on you as far as speaking to a civilian? Yeah. So a lot the civilians I spoke to were all pretty resilient people. Uh, two really stick out in my mind. Uh, the first one, her name is Helena. And so she is this 83-year-old woman who lives in the Irpine next to the uh, – soccer stadium there and so i was at the soccer stadium taking some pictures uh there's a couple mortar and artillery impacts in the area and then you can see uh on the walls and the trees that there was a two-way gunfight going on like right there and then right next to the soccer field like you could throw a stone and hit it is this destroyed like house type of thing with a wall around it um And so this woman was outside, you know, picking up apples with a bucket. And then um, she weighs me over to her. And I don't speak a word of Ukrainian. And we didn't have our uh, translator with us yet. And she weighs me over. And she starts, you know, like taking me around the property and it's all destroyed. Like it's completely gone, everything. And she was showing me like what used to be a kitchen and what used to be like what I assume is a living room. And she was like, she was like crying, trying to explain these things. And it was one of those things where it's like, you didn't need to understand the language to know what she was saying. Yeah. Um, I could tell that she had been through something extremely difficult. And so, you know, we took our pictures with her and we, we left you know, I gave her a hug and we left and then thought about her the entire rest of the day. And I thought, man, like this woman, like it's going to be winter soon. And she's clearly been through something very difficult and she wants to talk about it or else she wouldn't have waved me over to like show her around or show me around. And so we think, well, we got to do something nice for her. And so the crew of Atlas, uh, Global Aid, and I, and Project Leaflet, we go to this grocery store. We buy a ton of groceries. 
We drive back there the next day. We give them to her, and this time we have our translator with us. And so she's telling us the story of like how she survived and like what she did during the the battle and the liberation of Irpin. And she was telling us uh, one of the highlights sir, was uh, she was telling us that there were Ukrainians in the apartment to like her north or to her south, and then there were Ukrainian or Russians in the buildings to her north. Um, and she was saying that like she was caught like in between them in the in a two way gunfight, and that was just crazy. And she spent like several days in a old Soviet era bomb shelter in her basement. And she showed us it's not really like a bomb shelter. It's like a 10 foot hole in the ground that like you can't even stretch your arms out in. And she spent like days down there. She's 83 years old. And then she told us and she started crying. because She felt bad about it, that she was cooking food for the Ukrainian soldiers and like scurrying across the road to deliver it to them. And that she was crying because there wasn't enough food to go around for them. Uh, and then after the battle, she told us that she was like picking up human remains off of the property. Uh, and then uh, she gave some pretty good life advice about how people need to look at who they're voting for. She was very adamant, like you can't just pick a name on a card and like expect them to be good leaders. She said you need to look at people who are on the ballot, you know. She said you can't – like the world needs to just stop like picking good faces or friendly faces and they need to start looking at people's deeds and what they're doing instead of what they're saying they're going to do. And uh, it was pretty profound. And then she told us like she makes like – her only source of income is like a pension and it's like so incredibly low that it literally just like broke my heart. I just took all the money out of my wallet and just gave it to her like right on the spot. I was like, just take it. It's not much, but like it's better than nothing. Um, yeah. And then she gave me a kiss on the cheek and thanked me and uh, got a lot of pictures with her and her whole stories on video. Uh, planning to start a YouTube page here soon so I can publish these things. Uh, and I think about her a lot as well. And, and, then, and where was that? Where was she located? In Irpin. It's a city. Okay. Directly north of Kiev. And then another woman, Victoria, she was present for the entire Battle of Moshun uh, next to a house that I have sort of dubbed the Kill House. So anyone who follows Battles and Beers kind of knows somewhat what the Kill House was. It was basically a house that like 10 to 12 Western volunteers held against like hordes of Russian soldiers, like Russian VDV. Like it's an incredible, crazy story. And all of these guys survived and they ended up killing like probably like a hundred Russian soldiers, these guys who had never worked together, never trained together. And they were in this house uh, for five nights and days. And then the house directly next to them was Victoria's house. And she spent basically the majority of the battle inside of a gun safe with her husband. And um, I interviewed her. And the thing that the thing that sticks out in my mind about her is that the, at the end of the interview is she recited a whole bunch of uh, poetry to me from memory. And she had this big, beautiful bookcase that had been damaged by uh, like a Russian rocket that had flown in through the side of her house. Uh, her car had 
bunch of five, four, five bullet holes in it. And I asked, asked her at the end, like, what can we do to help you? And instead of asking for like cash handouts or anything like that, she just wanted cement to rebuild her house. Mm. That's it. She just wanted cement. And so Atlas Global Aid, once again, stepped to the rescue and, uh, delivered all that stuff for her to help her rebuild her house. So those are the two civilian stories that really stuck out to me. And uh, again, I've got Victoria's whole story on video as well, as well as a bunch of pictures. So now that it's, um, you know, the winter months are in, uh, the temperatures in Ukraine are very cold and, and freezing. And I'm sure that's, the fighting is extremely unpleasant uh, just for the weather aspect of it. Uh, have you been talking to anybody who's fighting now in, in, in these conditions? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. There is a pretty viral picture. I'm pretty sure you've seen it. It went. It was everywhere. There's uh, the Battle of Bakhmut still. There's a picture of this guy in this trench. He's covered head to toe in mud, and he's eating like out of a tin can with a fork uh, in a dirty trench. And then there's it came as like a set of pictures. It was like four or five pictures, and then another picture is the, the trees in the area, and they're all just shaved halfway up because they're just blown up by artillery. And then there's another picture of them uh, in the trenches, and they're like knee deep in mud. And this is like World War One level stuff. Anyway, I found that guy and I talked to him. And I found his wife and I talked to her too and interviewed them. And then the two of them uh, were like floodgates um, for soldiers in the area. And so because of that, them and their contacts, I've, I'm talking to – I won't say how many, but a lot of soldiers in the area. And uh, it's it's miserable, man. Like they're telling me they're like sleeping in mud that's like freezing at night and then like kind of thawing out during the day and that they have like some in some places on the front line they have to like sit up while they're sleeping or else they, there's a real danger of them drowning in mud uh, That's crazy. while they're sleeping and it's just like these are conditions that literally no one still serving in our military can really comprehend like there were like definitely some like shitty cold nights and stuff for guys during the GWAT, but like nothing like what these guys are experiencing. This is like a world war one level of suffering. Yeah. Um, and like negative like, 15, negative 20 degrees. Yeah. And it's just like, they're like living in these conditions that are just horrible. And um, I'm actually working with the wife of that soldier that I described. Uh, we're going to be starting a fundraiser soon to be getting these guys like proper, like muck boots and uh like gas like like the like jet boil stoves and stuff because they're like eating like frozen bread and like canned food that's frozen and they're trying to like Man, heat it crazy. up with candles and stuff in the trench and it's just it's just crazy and again atlas global aid the wonderful organization that paid for my trip they purchased seven hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of cold weather gear that they're going to be distributing. Uh, I think they've already started distributing uh, to soldiers all up and down the front line. And, um, but I think a, an important thing to keep in mind is to like, you know, however poorly equipped 
Ukrainian soldiers are, odds are the Russian soldiers in the opposite trenches are even poor, more poorly equipped. Right. Uh, there was a picture, uh, it was like ISR drone footage or something like that. And it was like a group of like 15 conscripts who had literally frozen to death in their trenches in one night. That's crazy. Yeah, I'll send you that picture afterwards. But they're just like stacked up like firewood uh, behind a truck after like they had frozen to death in the middle of the night. So yeah, like fighting in these conditions is definitely not something that uh, we can really comprehend. And people thought the fighting was slowed down, but it has not. You got to think like these are nations that are not strangers to the cold. They do cold weather training. uh, And it's not like the war just started. It has definitely intensified, but it has been like a low level engagement since 2014. Uh, and fighting has gone on every winter since then. You can talk to guys like uh, like Rugi on Instagram. He's a British volunteer there. He was in the trenches before the war started. Uh, you can talk to Aiden Aslin, who I would venture to call my friend now. Uh, he will tell you the war does not stop once it's snowing. Um, and you can just see now the the winter has not stopped the fighting and has not even slowed it down uh and in some parts of the front the fighting has just gotten worse yeah i i saw you know a bunch of folks uh, giving analysis and what they think is going to happen you know a couple of months ago and a lot of guys were saying uh yeah you know we expect the fighting to slow down uh, once it, the temperature drops um but you know, like you mentioned Bakhmut a bunch of times earlier, uh, the fighting is super intense there, um, you know, even now in, in these horrible conditions that they're fighting in. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that uh, this is largely like an artillery war. Yeah. Uh, for the most part. Uh, most of the Ukrainian soldiers I've spoken to have never even seen a, a Russian soldier, at least not a live one. Um there's definitely soldiers I've spoken to who have been in direct combat against the Russians. Uh, I spoke to a Ukrainian not too long ago who described to me a scene that was literally feels like he ripped it straight from All Quiet on the Western Front, mm. talking about manning a machine gun as a bunch of Russians got out of their trenches right in front of him and charged across a field. And he told me like days later that field is just absolutely rank. Because it like the bodies, no one can move them, you know, and so they're just out there rotting, and Ooh, so probably smells horrible. Yep, and so he's saying like he's one of the examples uh, of troops that have been in direct combat with the Russians, but most of them, you know, it's a it's an artillery and a drone war now. Um, most of the combat casualties are caused by artillery and drones. Uh, most of the Ukrainian soldiers I've spoken to have never even seen a live Russian soldier. And uh, yeah, it's definitely – it's an interesting conflict. Yeah, well, even um, talking to guys who fought in Afghanistan, uh, there was a whole bunch of guys who said they've – only seen the Taliban from a distance. They've never seen them up close or that kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, that's that's the case for most of the Ukrainian army uh, that does see combat, at least, is they've if they have seen the Russians, it's from a distance. But you also have a large number of soldiers who have engaged the Russians 
at very close distances. Uh, I've spoken to Ukrainians who have cleared trenches with the Russians in them. You know, like they turn a corner in the trench, there's a Russian like two feet away and they fire like point blank into them. Uh, I spoke to a Western volunteer, former Marine. They talked about uh, in the summer, he was actually wounded and I interviewed him on camera and got his whole story. Their, their casualties, how do I describe this in a way that makes sense? They fought the Russians in a house is what I can describe. So they were in the house. The Russians were in the house. Uh, their casualties were in very close proximity to each other, and their Ukrainian commander was conversing with the Russians. They were so close. You know, like they were throwing frags at each other. Uh, and uh, some of the GoPro footage of that is – insane like yeah so yeah that's another big story i plan on documenting the hell out of and uh publishing in a future date but yeah they were basically like shit talking the russians they were so close to them um you know that's not everyone's experience most soldiers like i said never even see the russians but some of them get so close you can you could grab them uh but you know i think every single story is important to document uh, no matter what it is. So whether it's a guy clearing the trenches like Dan Daly did in World War One, or if it's the guy like driving ammo up to the front line, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll document and talk to literally anybody. And so uh, the book that you've put out covering Ukraine, at what time period do the stories stop? Like, like when does it cover stories up until? Yep. So it's the first 150 days of combat. So it's from February 24th to July 24th. Uh, I definitely plan on doing another volume. Uh, I will do as many volumes as I can until the war is over. Um, It sucks to say I wish the war would end today. Uh, but you know, I think it's important. Uh, it's not for like any like personal gain either. Like all the funds that I'm making from this current book are helping me go back to Ukraine to document more stories. And uh, you mentioned that you wanted to kind of uh, fund it, uh, but you know, by your own means. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is time that, I'd like to be completely self sufficient. Is is that partly because you you want to? go like exactly where you want to go and kind of have your own itinerary type of thing like yeah so this last trip i and it was it's nothing bad like this last trip i was just part of like a larger group uh i probably had like 51 percent of the vote for what we did Mm -hmm. but i would just like to be uh more in control Right. This is coming to, and it's not like anything was like wrong or bad about the last trip. It's just that this this coming one, I want to be more uh, self aligned. Right, right. And um, and are you are you squared away in terms of uh, being able to do that? Uh, I definitely have the contacts in country that I need now. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, you know, like finding a translator was extremely difficult. Most of them uh, want like an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, right. translate and then but like oh if you want to go to the front line that's like an extra 150 bucks a day sort of thing um, and then the biggest issue is transportation because every car that is for sale or rent right now 
that is like four wheel drive is being purchased by the army and sent to the Eastern front. <laughs> right. You, you would not believe how hard it was to find a vehicle. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess it makes sense. Um, and, uh, and so when is it that you plan on going back? Do you already have the dates or? Uh, no, not yet. I would like to ideally go back in March or April of this year. There's still a ton of stories I need to get documented. Okay. All right. Well, um, we should talk a little bit before you go uh, or when you're in the sort of planning phases, because I do have some contacts uh, that may be useful um, in, in terms of being able to get people or translators or whatever. So. Absolutely. I'd appreciate yeah. any help I can get. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was it was great talking to you. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the work you're doing. I, I probably said that to you a couple of times online, but, um, you know, your account, it's it's phenomenal. And it's like I mentioned before, you know, I prefer to get information and see what's happening like on social media as opposed to just watching a news station Um and and I, I think people will get a better picture of, of and a better understanding of what's happening when you can just kind of get the information straight from the ground as opposed to uh, the information gets filtered and, and people are, are, you know, giving it through the slant of their opinion or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, so I agree. Um, it's important, I think, what you're doing. Um, you mentioned before that you, you don't kind of view yourself as a journalist, but what you're doing is, is absolutely journalism. So, um, again, it was great to talk to you and, and I really love what you're doing. And, I'm, you know, perhaps we can do another podcast as well. Absolutely. I'd love that. I uh, really enjoyed speaking to you tonight. I'm very grateful that you invited me on the show. So uh, for people listening, uh, where can they go to keep up with what you got going on and stuff like that? Yep. So if you want to see the most up-to-date stories, uh, go to Instagram. And my Instagram handle is battles.and.beers. Um, and then if you're interested in my book at all or either of my books, uh, there's the link tree there in the bio. Uh, or you can look on Amazon. And the, the book is called What War Did to Us, Ukraine.
Hello, hello.